Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. And this week, we're speaking with Tom Zollner, who happens to be LARB's politics editor. We're talking about his new book, The National Road, as well as the recent election and the road forward in this very divided nation. Yes, we are. Did you guys, did you celebrate this past weekend? For sure. I mean, though, as we were talking about a little bit before the show, it's like, I feel like the mood of celebration is like, gotten tempered a little bit because of how Trump and the Republicans refuse to recognize the results of the election, which is troubling. But I suppose I have to keep the faith that eventually order and reason and law will prevail and we will have a Biden-Harris presidency starting January 20th of 2021. Kate, how are you feeling? Yeah, a little dazed, I guess. I, I had a lot of fun celebrating on Saturday, although I was having major FOMO about, you know, other cities where there's more street life. But even in my neighborhood, you know, there were people were out on the street, people I was, you know, it's kind of like, I feel hypocritical because I'm like waving flags and I don't really like the symbol of the American <laughs> flag. And yet, you know, someone handed me a free flag and I'm like, okay, and I got some uh, red, white and blue balloons. You know, I was just, it just, I just wanted to have fun. It just seems so fun. And um, I did feel really happy. And now it's true. I, I, I am also troubled and it's hard to, it's just hard to unwind, you know? And, and also, I mean, it's obviously huge problems remain. It's not that, you know, yes. this administration, inshallah, will yeah. come into power and everything will be fine. But of course it does seem like, okay, if they do, it's it's possible. There's potential. Everything has a little bit of just a breath of fresh air. But I, I, I'm just still toggling between, you know, that anxiety that I've felt, you know, every day of the last four years and, you know, some, some alternative. So I'm a little shell-shocked. Yeah, same here, I think. I'm in New York at the moment, so I did have a very nice chance to to celebrate and be out on the street, and there was music, oh. and there were literally people dancing in the streets. It was a pretty joyous occasion, but I totally agree with both of you guys where it has turned into something a little bit more hesitant and a little bit more cautious, which I don't think is a bad thing. That's probably how we should all proceed. But I'm glad we had this moment of joyous celebration. And Kate, actually what you said kind of links up with what Tom Zollner talks about in our interview where he talks about kind of reclaiming the flag and and making patriotism a little bit more cool than it has been. (laughs) So maybe you did a little bit of that. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I definitely have thought about this over the last, you know, whatever. I've, I guess I've thought about it before then too, when you say that you love, when when one person's ownership of, of the country is, is really just a narrow idea of what, you know, that means, of what the U.S. is, you know, that, that there's, there's a very distinct form of patriotism, but I think there are other kinds that we need to hold up and that might be helpful. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Kate. I'm totally co-signing that. That's like to to have a kind of patriotism that like really 
is oriented towards making America a more just and equal society rather than the, you know, forms of patriotism that certainly like the right likes to promote, which is about kind of denying or forgetting, you know, aspects of American history, uh, usually specifically having to do with, with race, gender, sexuality, those kind of things, and imperialism. But to kind of embrace a, a patriotism that is about like making a better and more just America. Yeah. And with more people voting, that will also be clear. You know, the, the more people that become involved, the better. So I'm still looking to Georgia to... Yes, same. <laughs> I think we're all kind of on tender hooks right now, like waiting to see what the outcome... I'm not, if I'm totally honest, I'm not very like bullish on how I think that's going to turn out. I do fear that we're headed towards like another GOP controlled Senate. Yeah. But I am definitely, definitely like hoping that we could turn something around in Georgia. Yeah. Let's hope. And let's get to the interview with Tom. Let's do it. We're joined today by Tom Zollner. Tom Zollner is the New York Times bestselling author of eight nonfiction books, including Uranium Train and The Heartless Stone. He teaches at Chapman University and Dartmouth College. Tom Zollner is also the former reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. His latest book is called The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America, in which Tom travels all over the country investigating what divides our nation and what brings us together. He is also the politics editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books, so he's one of ours. And we'd like to start off our interview today with a discussion of recent events. We can't think of a better person to have on to talk about the election. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so Tom, speaking of the election, because that's all I think that's been on anyone's mind for the last week, tell us how you reacted on Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and then Friday as things were transpiring. Were you surprised at all by the results? Were you surprised at the support that Trump was still able to muster? Shocked, but not surprised. And something that ails our nation is a reverse of what Tocqueville noticed in the 19th century, which is the likeness of association, where where you live tends to affect many things, your beliefs, your tastes, your friends. And a look at the election maps really shows that affinity of political preference. Ohio, for example, is particularly dismal in terms of the three C cities, as they're known, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, plus you can add in Dayton for a D. You know, those are pretty solidly blue areas and everything else is a sea of red. So you get, you know, those blueberries floating in the cherry Kool-Aid. And this is a result of an untwining, you might say, of the social bonds that used to hold us together. We see it most viscerally with politics. And we saw it in stark relief in the 2020 election. And so Trump's level of support is therefore, you know, as I say, shocking, but not surprising. I think that one thing that a number of us, let's say, on the left or in solidly blue states like California or heavily dense cities like Los Angeles are struggling with is the sense of, I guess I would say, almost like cognitive dissonance between like what one sees 
in what I will describe as Trump's kind of erratic and often irresponsible and obviously also often deceptive behavior and public statements as a president. Something that I find, and I think many of us do, utterly abhorrent, if not frightening. And yet 71 million Americans think that this is the way to go. Can you explain a little bit about like what informs that cognitive dissonance? I am thoroughly convinced that the invention, if that's even the right word, of the internet is the result of our epistemological misery <laughs> in this country, <laughs> the uh, erosion of shared facts. You know, here we have the greatest research tool that humanity has ever known, and it's actually decreased our level of collective knowledge. The information hegemony that came in for so much criticism, I'll just use a U.S. example here, the Associated Press, the three major networks, the big newspapers, you know, there's a lot of reason to have criticized that model uh, from Noam Chomsky and others. But yet, what I don't think we fully appreciated was the bulwark that that sense of information funneling really created between us and chaos. This is not an original comparison by any means, but the invention of the printing press in specifically Europe unleashed a tide of unhappiness and division, viz. the Protestant Reformation, religious wars. This is the fragmentation of information. And we're seeing a similar thing happen right now. And when we can't agree on facts, and when there are, to use a notorious phrase of the era, alternative facts that folks will turn to to stroke the little pleasure centers in their minds and get their confirmation bias reaffirmed, you're going to get distinct political realities. I think what surprises me most about this is the binary quality of it, the red and blue America. You know, One would have thought that this would have broken into more pieces, that we'd have yeah. more European-style parliamentary disputes. But instead, this has taken on specifically here a particularly American center of gravity. I'm wondering in that case, if everything's so dispersed at this moment, why is it still so regional? Why do cities remain so liberal and the blueberries? And why are these rural areas still so red? We've seen a country that is famously on the move. That is to say the U.S. with our myth, which is not so neat, of westward expansion. We're a country founded at least on the Anglo side by travelers and also on the indigenous side by travelers across the Bering Land Bridge. We have this dynamism at our core, or we like to think so, but the reality is that we are freezing in place more than we ever have in our nation's history. The coming of the internet and the untwining of economic realities, the um, gap in between those who are extremely fortunate and those who struggle to get by also has a geographic component to it. So the ability to work from afar, even before the pandemic, resulted in a kind of a sorting, where if you could afford to work anywhere, you were probably going to take advantage of that and move to a desirable place or a more desirable place. If your method of making a living involved working with your hands or working in an industry that physical presence was necessary, such as healthcare or retail, you were probably going to be hunkering down more than ever 
in the place that you're planted. And moving statistics, just even from U-Haul or from Mayflower, bear this out. Fewer Americans changed their addresses in 2016 at any point since they had since 1950. This has resulted in, again, a profound division that geography means less in the United States because of the untethering of traditional work habits, but not for everyone. For many people, it's made geography even more of a prison. This is something that you get into in your new book. I really do want to return to this point that you're making, but I want to stick for the moment to your experience of the election. And I'm curious because I'm not a big social media person. I'm, I usually avoid it for the sake of my own sanity, which is already frayed to an extent that I probably can't sacrifice it even more than I already do. But when I do see you on social media, you engage and you engage pretty thoroughly. And I think you are one of the only people that, maybe this is sad, but that engages in that divide and kind of jumps into that divide. And I want to ask you how you're feeling about that these days. I mean, it seems like a natural impulse to you. That would be my guess, but potentially as your job as our politics editor, but also as just a human living amidst the kind of division that the internet fosters, how do you mitigate that? How do you navigate that? What's your strategy? Right. I mean, <laughs> engagement. I'm glad you've taken a peek. It, it often <laughs> descends into pro wrestling chaos, you know, with the schoolyard insults being thrown back and forth. I indulge in that as a form of stress relief. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I went to high school in one of the reddest zip codes in Arizona, which already is a state that's been a petri dish for the rest of the United States in terms of seeing mm -hmm. many of the discontents of where we are as far as our social divisions, really playing out in Arizona ahead of time. It's no mistake that Trump made one of his first like really high-profile speeches after the escalator in Phoenix, playing to these nativist tendencies, which are parried as well by countervailing influences in Arizona. And so, yeah, social media has absolutely driven us apart. Does anyone get into these arguments and be convinced and say, like, aha, it's rare. I mean, it does happen. I've been convinced, have actually. You? There have been exchanges that I've had on social media that have caused me to rethink my position. But 99% of it is gladiator blood sport in terms of digging into your position and making fun of people. It's a totally guilty, and I'm made fun of, too, and I laugh a lot. But yeah, it doesn't do any good. It's like heavy drinking. It's fun in the moment, but long-term health consequences. This reminds me of something that you said just a little bit earlier that I wanted to pick back up on, which is you were talking about things that activate the pleasure centers of our confirmation bias, which I think is related to this. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way in which so much of contemporary politics is about affect and narrative. And I'm not saying that those factors didn't, obviously they have played a long historical role in politics in the US and everywhere else. But there seems to be a kind of, and just as you're saying, you actually have had your opinion changed on social media by engagement. It seems that so much of that engagement is just about kind of owning the libs, for example, on the right, or a similar kind of like, how can you guys believe this? How stupid really are you from the left? And that really what's happening is about two worlds that emerge from a set of feelings rather than facts. And that that seems much more difficult to kind of break up. Right. Traditional politics is defined by competing interest groups. That entities such as the Democratic Party, 
social organizations such as the Grange, we're going back into American history a little bit, movements like the ham and egg movement in the California of 80 years ago, these are predicated on what's going to advance my interests, primarily economic interests. I think we've seen a change with the enormous role of social media and political choices, political influence, and the aspect of performativity becomes more important than it has been. There was always an element of that, but this is really kind of the Lollapalooza of expressing your beliefs, being seen as parading around a certain point of view. And this also strikes me, very little is required of you other than to just sort of like say the words. You know, I'm going to indict my friends on the left as well when it comes to this. And just being able to get up there and say certain phrases usually associated with wokeism. And, you know, you're in the club, you're in the tribe, you're one of the bien pensant, you're a right thinker, and it's those guys over there. They're the problem, the MAGA guys, the MAGA people who are screaming, stop the steal, Trump is always right, and complaining about orange man bad. We throw out these phrases like badges, and this is not just true of folks who happen to think that Trump is the messiah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Tom Zollner, author of The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we had this week's book recommendation. We have Jenna Beals on the line with us today. Jenna is a former intern at the Ellery of Books. She was a truly exceptional intern, and so we have invited her back to give us a book recommendation. Jenna, what book are you going to recommend? I am recommending this book called Starting Point, which is a collection of Hayao Miyazaki's essays, interviews, and memoirs, translated by Beth Carey and Frederick L. Schott, both of whom are translators, interpreters, and writers of their own caliber and have received honors and awards and distinctions for their translating and interpreting work. Okay, tell us more about the book. So Starting Point, I think, is really fascinating. It's a It spans the years from 1979 to 1996. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's just these various pieces of speeches and writings done by Hayao Miyazaki, who is one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli. He's a director and animator, and I think many people have an attachment to those films. I know I certainly do. Um, So if you're interested in animation and being a screenwriter, a director, film industry, and even Japanese politics, this is a book that's just engrossing. I also think that why I would love to recommend it to LARB listeners and readers is just because it is a wonderful example of translated work. Mm. Um, It's a collection of interviews, especially I think highlights this because you can tell the cadence of different people's speech and thought patterns in English from Japanese, which I think is just a treasure. You'll get Hayao Miyazaki's thoughts on childhood, romance, environmentalism, and human nature itself. So for people, for listeners who are not familiar with Studio Ghibli, which Mm -hmm. in my head, I always say Ghibli, but I suppose that has been wrong the entire time. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the most famous Studio Ghibli movies. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Spirited Away, which yeah, is that's the big one, recognizable title, and then there are a plentiful array of others. Princess Mononoke, uh, which has themes of environmentalism and nature, as well as you know, love and about relationships with one another. Ponyo, a story about childhood and coming into independence and being, also a love story, although more familial and platonic. Do you have a favorite? Spirited Away, I always return to. It just really centers me. I love that film. I also really love uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Mm-hmm. I've read the book and I love the movie and I love the interpretation of the movie. I think every Studio Ghibli movie has something to offer and I really learn a lot from them. And so I love to hear the words of the director and screenwriter himself and what his intents were for those films. And some of it is pretty surprising. Um, He, I think, has this amazing, interesting philosophy of life, which is just, we must live with contradictions, which is maybe Mm -hmm. not what you would expect from someone who has this sort of like gentleness and loving atmosphere in many of his films he does not shy away from the violence and maybe the the opposite side of humanity and of nature he thinks everything must coexist and he's also just a very fun and a little bit mean which Ooh. makes reading <laughs> reading his words in his book a, like a riotous it's like every every sentence has a nugget of wisdom and it's also delivered in this sort of pithy and blunt way. And I'm very attached to this book and the way he expresses himself. Jenna, tell us the title again and the authors. The title is Starting Point, original words by Hayao Miyazaki. And the translation is by Beth Carey and Frederick L. Schott. Thank you so much, Jenna. Thank you. We've been talking to Jenna Beals. She's a former intern at Barb, and we miss her greatly. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Tom Zollner, author of The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. So, um, Tom, if we can also talk about whether or not you know, we, we've talked about these kind of pleasure centers of confirmation bias and also these ways in which, to me, it increasingly seems that people are not so much like, are there coherent beliefs or kind of, as you were saying, economic interests that one that the populace are pursuing? Or is it really more about an emotional kind of desire to either dominate or win or be right that in itself doesn't necessarily embrace any kind of actual political change as much as it does the feeling of just being a dominator. Yes, I think it's very perceptive. And the notion of pragmatism and of uh, incremental uh, victories seems to have departed from our discourse. You know, what we see, to sort of use a, a hackneyed sports metaphor here, a lack of the team, you know, trying to move the ball forward with a, a, a series of uh, fullback runs and screen passes. And instead, you get these sort of like apocalyptic Hail Mary attempts, you know, and mm. the, 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 the plane to the cheap seats and um, the, the, the desire for total victory and adulation. And yes, you're right. It's very feelings based. Um, this is 
um, a type of spirit infecting our democracy that doesn't work so well for democracy. I, I wonder, Tom, about you know these kind of intersections that you've either experienced or, or witnessed, you know, in, in reporting and in your travels across the U.S. Um, it seems to me that the land itself, you know, a, a relationship to either the, the the vastness of the American landscape, um, you know, like certain hobbies of of hiking and being outside, certain areas that where there's a you know a shared affection for that that that's kind of like a key building block, even just in terms of preservation. That if we can all agree that you know okay this space is important, it should be preserved. That's not exactly like a political intent, although they, they kind of that's where it could start from. Maybe you could just talk about you know those possibilities of, of shared communal interests that that kind of go across the political divide. Yeah, it's often said that the United States is the very first country on the globe to be founded just on an idea, and I think that's really simplistic. The other component, first of all, to the United States is the land. And this is, at the lowest common denominator, the thing that we do have in common, you know, as a nation. We're roommates. We're stuck. We have to get along because, you know, we're bordered, hard bordered, uh, between between Canada and Mexico in terms of, you know, lines set by treaties that are not changing, in terms of oceans that are not going to go anywhere. Here we are. It was always a, a source of mystery and majesty to me that, you know, uh, a nation of which with such physical scope could exist and also exist in such a way that there's a fairly uniform culture to it. You know, anyone who has uh, lived in different places across the U.S. or even taken a cross-country drive um, will tell you that, you know, there is far more uh, that is common uh, about basic sort of American manners, uh, American culture, American expectations, than there is that, you know, is, is distinct or, or regional. Regionalism does live, it's true, um, but not nearly to the degree uh, that I think we sometimes give it credit for. I think there's a certain romance of, around regionalism that is a bit exaggerated. You know, the real geographic divisions um, in the United States are, are, are founded on uh, the prices of housing and the agglomeration of certain industries you know the the rest is for postcards <laughs> but do you think the splintering of of what we think of as regionalism i mean you mentioned this a little bit in your in your book this you know this kind of fantasy of small town usa and then you get closer to the highway and it's just all the same five chains that you find anywhere else in the country um just economically even what what that kind of homogeneity has done um, to the U.S. is is that it doesn't seem to me a, a particularly good thing. Yeah, it's it's certainly leveled out entrepreneurial efforts on uh, on the local level. You get into the whole alienation of labor. You know, I know what it's like to work in one of those um, national chains, and it's you know it's really diminishing to the spirit. You're 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 a cog. Your uh, imagination or initiative matters far less. Um, than it would in uh, a type of an enterprise where you actually know the boss, know the owner, that is, you know, have a closer connection with a regular base of, uh, of clientele. And so, you know, monoculture has its benefits. I'm going to give it that, you know. In, in, in the book, I write about the Dollar General chain, 
and how that is a profound mixed blessing to um, economically struggling areas of the country. You know, on one hand, it's a it's a wonderful place uh, where you can uh, decorate your 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 home. You know, you can get these like uh, little mini cans of tomato paste. You know, you can get your Coors Light for uh, a couple pennies cheaper than you would at uh, a grocery store. But you know, it does create that monoculture, Kate, that you're. Uh, that you're talking about. And it is also a sign of, you know, lack of economic vitality. Lack of that vitality comes, I think, a, a diminishment of the spirit. Just to follow up on that, Tom, I mean, I from your book, I, I loved, uh, among many of the chapters, which were just like such great glimpses into really deeply reported parts of the American experience in various scenes. The Dollar General store struck me as interesting because it also seems to be an intractable problem, right? So because it undercuts local mom and pops by just, you know, there was the example of a gallon of milk, right? It's a significant difference for people that are, you know, well below the poverty line or for lower income folks to pay $2 more a gallon for milk, which is what their local mom and pop can do, but the Dollar General undercuts them. Is there any way to actually reverse that or to tackle that? I mean, as a fundamental problem of capitalism, it seems somewhat intractable. Yeah, I don't see an easy way um, out of that. I mean, history has tons of moving parts and it's it's a unstoppable freight train. And so there could come a time when we see Dollar General going in the way of Woolco, you know, mm. or Woolworths. Right. You know, the original Five and Dime or A&P Grocery, which exists as a shadow of itself. What these kind of um, retail outlets provide um, is a predictability and um, a comfort, which is, I, I think, really key to our psychologies when it comes to taking care of these errands, you know, we want something that is not going to foul us up. You know, we want that uh, restaurant experience that uh, is, uh, is not going to give us uh, too much challenge or trouble. Mm. That's what, uh, that's what they provide. So let's get a little bit into your book in the more broader sense and sort of introduce readers and listeners to it. So in the book, you travel around the country and each chapter is an essay that is about a specific thing that you encounter in your travels. So one of the first questions that I sort of have for you is the most basic one. What is it about traveling around the country that helped you conceptualize the book and that helped you write it? What were you looking for? Gosh. You can work from home. You are one of those that can work from home. So, so tell us what physically moving around was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're right, uh, Dea, that books really do have origin stories. And um, this one, I think, had two. The first was what uh, Kate and I were talking about just a second ago about the land being the, the lowest common denominator. And I think a really um, kind of overlooked quotient when it comes to explaining uh, the United States that just simply look down at the ground, you know, uh, it, it has amazing stories to tell. And then the, the, the second origin point was realizing that, you know, I think writers are pulled by um, undersea currents that they don't, aren't really aware of. And uh, it took me years to realize that one of the undersea currents going on with me was an incessant return to the geography 
of whatever it was that was going on, the awareness of it somehow just kept coming up. And in a way that I began to think, man, I don't have much of an imagination here. You know, this, this is always just about um, location, location, location. Um, why is that? And looking back over some of what I had written and, you know, thinking about um, what I would like to write, so much of it seemed to sort of dance around that tent pole. And, you know, it's one of those sort of moments, I think, that we all have as writers where we just do the, 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 the face palm and go, duh. You know, this is that hidden subject. I'm convinced that, you know, nonfiction really works on two levels, that there's the surface kind of subject, and then there's there's usually a deeper subject going on that, you know, sometimes the author's not really aware of. And, you know, entire schools of literary theory have been founded on this idea that it's uh, actually the, uh, the, the reader that sees their own sort of larger sense of purpose and meaning in, in what's written. Tom, you know, one of the other things that comes up, and it was just kind of near and dear to my heart, I think, because I grew up in not a a small town, but definitely a smaller city in Lexington, Kentucky, where we had a kind of local paper that was robust and won, you know, was part of Knight Ritter and won a number of Pulitzer Prizes for in-depth local reporting and also some like national reporting. And so I was fascinated by your chapter that kind of both details your own history inside of kind of local newspapers. But also, I, I think I was gutted just kind of all over again by the profound sense of loss as those local papers have given way to increasingly more conglomerated kind of national brands and chains and specifically cable news. So can you just talk a little bit about how you see that, which on the one hand, your chapter kind of articulates is almost inevitable with the technological change of the internet. But just, yeah, what do you think the the ramifications for kind of national politics and local understanding is with the loss of those local media. Sure. This gets into what we were talking about earlier, that the coming of the greatest research and archiving tool in planetary history has actually led to a loss of collective brain cells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and not because the content is insipid, which, you know, it's obviously all up and down the, 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 the spectrum, but just that it's caused us to know less, paradoxically. Yeah. You know, I used to be sort of a technological utopianist that, you know, this is going to lead us to a brighter future, et cetera. But, you know, it's taking us to some unexpectedly dark places. So, you know, just as the rise of total lies, you know, total untruths coming to dominate our political discourse, you know, this is really painful on, I think, a less appreciated level, which is the lack of knowledge of places. Yeah. You know, just news obituaries that, you know, somebody of a certain prominence in, in your town passes away. There's something really beautiful about the local newspaper doing a deep dive into, you know, that person and their significance. This is becoming, you know, really increasingly hard to find. And so yeah. not only are people dying without their um, sort of life story being recorded even for future historians, the things that happen are going, you know, unmentioned, unarchived. Those who do history um, post 1830s, when the real rise of newspapers happened in, mm. you know, the uh, transatlantic West, will know just, you know, what amazing repositories of just explaining kind of what the heck happened. Uh, yeah. And th those resources are diminishing. You know, we're having a harder time just sort of... Um, 
understanding something that should be uh, should have been more documented. You know, we may be the 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 the, the most recorded yet least remembered sort of class of people to occupy um, the planet since the rise of the, the of newspapers, like I said, in the 1830s. And there's also the role of, you know, local media in, in holding, you know, small, small time officials and, and government accountable. You know, yes. That, that unchecked and, and paid for by corporate sponsors, you know, corruption can flourish anywhere and will. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about Arizona since you're from Tucson and um, since it looks like it will be turning blue fingers crossed. I think that's a surprising turn for a lot of people. I guess, you know, it's been so, so long since Arizona went for a Democratic candidate. I wondered what you thought about that change and just, you know, we're talking about this deep entrenchment and yet this election cycle, a state that has been red for so long turned blue. What do you think that means? Wow. Um, it was inevitable, first of all, the in-migration. Arizona's founded on cheap housing. And, you know, uh, the folks seeking to kind of have a, a better way of life, um, you know, find themselves there. I can tell you a story from um, last week, which was, of course, election week, that uh, might help illustrate what we're talking about. I um, got signed up to be a poll watcher. Uh, in a town called Kingman, which is in um, a, a really deep red portion of Arizona. This is a town that infamously Timothy McVeigh planned the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, this is um, a county full of uh, hardcore constitutionalists, folks who are just the side of a militia, places where the, uh, the, the Second Amendment is taken pretty seriously. And these places are easy to caricature. And there was some thought that there would be some intimidation at the polls that, you know, um, guys with uh, Trump flags in their pickup trucks and, you know, heavily armed were going to be sort of lurking around the polling places, you know, just sort of making sure that uh, uh, large caravans of Democrats didn't make their voices heard. And this, of course, didn't happen. And halfway during the day, um, I thought, well, Uh, I'm happy to be of service anywhere, but maybe I could go knock on some democratic doors. They do exist, even in this place. And the the, the, the vice chair of the local party says, yeah, we're not doing anything. I couldn't believe it. Um, You know, this this is a county that went, I think, 27% for Hillary Clinton. But those are votes, right? Um, You know, they're not going to maybe count on a local level or with, you know, the state legislative districts. But my gosh, those votes count not only for a U.S. senator, but for obviously the president. So I took it on myself to go uh, knocking. And to the best of my knowledge, even one week later, I think I was the only guy and the entirety of Mojave County that was bothering to seek out the Democrats that were there and try and hustle them to the polls. Uh, and I'm not a superhero. I'm not bragging about this. You know, this is not me being like a savior or anything. This is, this is just sort of like basic, like this is what you do. You get out the vote, GOTV. It's like uh, the gold standard for uh, any political party's ground game. And, the, and that, you know, the national Democrats and the state Democrats have just blown off um, those folks who still sort of have those beliefs in, you know, deep red countries struck me um, as a really visceral and unfortunate manifestation of what we've been talking about, actually, right here, uh, which is the um, fragmentation of 
geography uh, and the way that we've come to look at these places as red and blue America. The picture is uh, far more complex than that. So did it seem to you, I mean, we were talking about the kind of like something that Eric brought up but the, and about the affective relationship that people have to politics, feelings um, driving some of the activity. Did it seem to you that what had become entrenched there was a sort of defeatist attitude or was it about about division and that there was no way to bridge that gap between people or was it just exhaustion in terms of like what what is what's happening in those places where you know as you said there's sort of a failure in terms of making sure that people go and vote and participate yeah i think uh, defeatism absolutely plays a role i think maybe lack of imagination plays a role Mm. Um, i'll tell you that there's an idea around the democratic party that uh, it cozied up to Wall Street, that you know it got into bed with uh, big tech. It really embraced uh, free trade as an article of faith. Uh, Bill Clinton famously took executive action to sign NAFTA, you know, and that it uh, got away from its, its lunch bucket, blue collar, common person base. Um, Thomas Frank has written uh, about this in his book, uh, Listen Liberal, which I think is a pretty good book. Um, but still, I used to think that that's kind of exaggerated, that, you know, the, the policies still remain there regardless of what you might think of the Democratic Party image of Hillary Clinton going to talk to Goldman Sachs for big speaking fees that, you know, yeah, there's, there's that, but, you know, look beyond the surface and look at the policy. My experience last week was deeply discouraging, and, you know, I began to become more sympathetic to that argument that, um, there, there has been an abandonment of, um, for lack of a better term, this is a grossly simplified term, but the heartland, you know, um, voters without college degrees of um, any ethnicity who, who feel like you know, their traditional political home has evaporated. And, you know, into that void, into that sense of anger and um, sort of nihilism, comes flooding Trumpism. How can we, maybe this is like a way to wrap up, is there, how can we confront that nihilism? Like in a in an honest and like effective way. Like you you speak so beautifully in your book about the, the kind of almost Whitman-esque difficulty, but beauty of imagining America together, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of embraceive adhesivity, um, union through diversity, that sort of thing. Like these four core bedrock principles of at least the kind of dream utopian vision of America. Do you think we can get to there? Like, is this to, you know, when Biden talks, for example, about healing a nation, and I don't think any of us are under the illusion that that will happen in four years, um, you know, what do you think the prospects are or the path possibly forward to bringing together such, uh, to use your words before, fragmented nation and, and social body? Yeah, I, I have maybe two potential things to contribute to that. Um, the first is uh, that the, um, the liberals and progressives in the United States um, made some kind of a, a collective agreement to largely abandon uh, the idea of, uh, of patriotism. You know, we're, we're sort of a self-critical bunch by nature, and 
you know, the military adventurism of um, the Vietnam era caused um, the idea of love of country to be somewhat uncool, right? We're, we're in a, a phase, certainly in academia, where we tend to delight in tearing things down and finding fault, you know, instead of um, affirmational uh, values. And so uh, I'd, I'd love to see that the political left, for lack of a better term, you know, really embrace those icons of patriotism, you know, the American flag, um, celebrating um, those aspects of our national history, which are good, you know. America's founded on the land, true, um, but also the idea. And it's a really good idea, horribly and perfectly executed, granted. But, you know, look to the good in that and find a personal kind of um, patriotism. And the second thing that maybe could be of value to me at least personally, is um, the passionate love of the land, you know, the sense of a shared real estate. I happen to think, uh, perhaps chauvinistically, that uh, the United States occupies the most gorgeous real estate on the planet, that we were blessed with it. Um, And the love of the land, the prairies, uh, the mountains, um, the coastline, the deserts, um, the swelling of the heart, um, that happens when you when you see these uh, these these vistas, even the urban vistas, even the suburban vistas, which are beautiful in their own way, um, that that you know can create a, a sense of belonging and a sense of obligation. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that the original title for this book, which uh, once it was through the sort of publishing process, got changed to the National Road, which I think is the right title. But the original title was Your Land you know, directly sort of channeling Mm. Woody Guthrie there that, you know, that we do have an ownership, um, even though we might feel uh, kicked around and abandoned by it, abused by it. Um, Certainly this is absolutely true of marginalized groups in our history that, you know, why would we feel pride or ownership in this? But, you know, we do all have a sense of obligation to it, um, a a sense of caring for uh, each other. And I'm going to do this uncool thing here of um, quoting from one of our founding documents, you know, the Declaration of Independence, where to each other said, you know, the, the, the signatories of this document, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honors. You know, that's 18th century language, but it's pledging to each other, you know, that we're going, we're in this thing together. And uh, a movement back towards that sense of shared obligation, I think, would go a long way and uh, maybe helping us um, drop some of the anger that we have towards each other. Well, that seems like kind of a lovely place to end this conversation. And a high point, we had a big one just this past weekend, but thank you so much, Tom, for talking to us and for joining us and congratulations on the book. Thank you. And thank you guys for the work that you do. Thanks, Tom. You yeah. too. We've been speaking with Tom Zollner. His latest book is called The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. He's also the politics editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. And thanks again, Tom, for joining us. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Tom Zollner, author of The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. 
The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.